I was very entertained in Paris when visiting this museum one time to find a statue of St. Catherine holding her fiery wheel, and right next to her was a fire extinguisher. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been going down a list of antiquated names for diseases that we have suffered from to various degrees over the years. And I pointed out at the start of our last episode that we've been having a great time talking about these diseases, even though the subject matter is really quite grim. You know, the the one we're going to start with today is pretty grim indeed, with a lot of grim associations. That's melancholia as a physical disease. Well, this was thought to be an actual disease caused by an excess of choler. That's where the cholia part comes from. C-H-O-L-E-R, or black bile, which we talked about earlier when we were discussing the uh, humors theory of disease. And today we just call it depression, and it's caused by something different than an excess of black bile. I encountered melancholy as a big subject when I first started to work at Washington State University and learned that a couple of my colleagues had secured a large grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to create a variorum edition of Robert Burton's book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, What It Is, With All the Kinds, Causes, Symptoms, Prognostics, and Several Cures of It in Three Main Partitions, with their several sections, members, and subsections, philosophically, medicinally, historically, opened and cut up. (laughs) Wait, that's the title. (laughs) That's the title. We can't get a word count on that title, but I'm assuming that the word count on the book is actually longer. It's enormous, and he wrote four (laughs) different editions of it from Uh. between 1621 and 1638. It became a sort of place where he dumped anything that he was interested in. So it's not at all all about melancholy. He just ranges all over the place. And it's a place that a lot of scholars of language like to explore. And people who want to know more about ideas in the Renaissance, it's just a fascinating heap of verbiage. Oh, well, fascinating if you've got the right taste. I did plow my way through one edition of it when I was in grad school thinking, well, everybody says this is a famous book, maybe I should read it. And uh, the professor who was working on this project was astounded to learn that I had actually read my way through the whole thing because he hadn't yet himself. (laughs) What they did was uh, use the grant to buy a lot of computer equipment a large mainframe system, a well, modest-sized mainframe system, and put it in a laboratory in the Department of English, and uh, then run the entire text of all four editions through it and use software to uh, figure out what the changes were and when they'd been made and when things had been deleted and so on, and then prepare the four different editions, which were published finally by Oxford University Press. 
So that was a big opening for me because now that they had this computer laboratory, they were seeking people to use it. And I was working on my nuclear holocaust book at that time. And so I, I went in and learned how to use the computer for typesetting and or text input, I should say, and uh, got connected to BitNet, which was an academic equivalent of the internet, much smaller, restricted to um, originally scientists communicating with each other, but then the humanists got involved too. And uh, eventually I actually sent my manuscript, so to speak, my text to the publisher, Kent State University Press, via BitNet a very slow and torturous process, which uh, I've talked about before. But that's what got me really into the whole computer network business. And I signed up for CompuServe. And then when we got connected to the internet, got onto that and ultimately the web. And that's when I got inspired to do common errors in English usage in the web. So uh, I owe a debt to Robert Burton for having, in a very indirect way, got me involved in the very project that we're talking about today. So there's a through line from Robert Burton's opus on melancholy all the way up to common errors in English usage. Uh, there is that connection. And this book, this Robert Burton book, we might think of it as kind of a manifesto the way you're describing it. I mean, it's not really just limited to the anatomy of melancholy. It's sort of all things Robert Burton that he poured into there. Yeah, like. I wouldn't call it a manifesto. It's just uh, sort of his showing off everything he knows and talking about curious topics. A miscellany. <laughs> One okay. Talk about it. And uh, he's not to be confused with the other literary figure, Richard Burton. Not the actor either, but the literary figure, Richard Burton, from the 19th century, is that right? Yes, and uh, an explorer. Uh, and probably his most lasting contribution uh, was his translation of the Arabian Nights, or more properly, uh, The Thousand Nights and a Night, or The Thousand and One Nights. Unfortunately for modern readers, Burton made the huge mistake, in my opinion, of doing what a lot of 19th century translators did when they had to deal with an antique text, which was to try to use antique language, antique English. I've spoken before about the fact that one of the great advantages that the Germans and the French had when they became acquainted with Shakespeare at a very late date was they, they read it in contemporary language, which was much more clear to them than us reading Shakespeare's original languages today. Burton made The Thousand and One Nights sound like it had been written by a contemporary of Shakespeare. Very long, tangled sentences, obscure, obsolete words. The Thousand and One Nights is supposed to keep somebody awake and it's more likely to put them to sleep if you're trying to read Burton. Yeah, I've noticed that about the Richard Burton translations of Thousand and One Nights. It seems like it's really odd juxtaposition that he's writing in the 19th century, and it seems like it should read like Dickens or the Brontes or something like that uh, that's contemporary to the period. It shouldn't read like something that's so old. Yes, and, and that was not his only problem. He uh, actually couldn't read Arabic, so he worked from a French translation, which in itself was pretty inaccurate. And Burton also had the tendency to sort of sex things up so sometimes he made it a little more raunchy than it was in the original. I see. So a couple of uh, problematic 
Burton's in the literary canon, but interesting in their own separate ways. And not to be confused with the actor Richard Burton, who uh, had no flaws whatsoever, right? <laughs> oh, well. we'll oh, well, let's that. not talk about that. But I, I did have the Richard Burton translation because I joined the book club, which gave it away as a gift for new subscribers. And uh, it's very handsome, leather bound and all that. And I, I plowed my way through most of it and uh, finally uh, resorted to seeing what else was available and found the Penguin translation, which is vastly superior, and sold the Burton edition to a used bookstore for a tidy sum of money. So even Richard Burton, I owe a small debt to. Well, the next item on our list of diseases is another one that is a word we still use commonly today but not to define a disease, and that's miasma. These were thought to be poisonous vapors that infected the air, and they were associated with malaria. Malaria, we talked about before, means bad air. And so a miasma was a particular kind of bad air that could make you sick. And there are, of course, diseases in which bad air makes you sick, but malaria doesn't happen to be one of them. It's a mosquito bite that makes you sick. So we often use the word miasma now metaphorically, more meaning sort of a dark and murky and confusing network of ideas or thoughts or something. So that it had been associated with something like malaria though right yes okay uh well what about one of these colorful ones in the past we talked about oh i don't know grocer's itch <laughs> things like that right. well this next one kind of makes me think of that milk leg milk leg i'm suffering yes. from milk leg if i'm suffering from milk leg what have i got well there are of course diseases that you can get from in properly pasteurized milk, uh, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> okay. um, it, milk here refers to a woman's breast milk. And so when a woman is nursing, she's in this stage after childbirth, postpartum. And uh, this is actually postpartum thrombophlebitis. Hmm. Uh, so swollen veins in the leg were thought to contain milk, which had leaked from the nursing mother's breasts. Aye. That's why they were swollen. They had all this extra fluid draining down that she was generating in her breasts. I see. So from within the body, the breast milk had permeated down into the legs. Right. And then the veins can become enlarged after giving childbirth, but it has nothing to do with milk leaking. No. Just thinking about it on my own, I probably wouldn't have come up with that theory. But it did it lead to a colorful naming for it, milk leg. What about mor mormal? Mormal, M-O-R-M-A-L. So it rhymes with normal, starts with an M. It's spelled like normal with an M. What is that? Yeah, a very obscure word that was used to uh, label a sore or ulcer on the leg. So it's another leg-related thing, but it's just a bad English spelling of the French phrase mort mal, M-O-R-T M-A-L so bad death uh -huh. so something that's deadly and evil would be a mort mal I see, and it's a sore or ulcer on the leg, right? And often wounds on the leg got infected and they didn't have a good way of dealing with infection some of the ways they had with dealing it, with it made it worse 
So ulcerated wounds that went on and on and ultimately led to the death of the patient were not at all unheard of. All right. Well, the next one I'm going to do in reverse, and you're going to announce to me what we used to call hemorrhoids. Piles. It was used a lot in the 19th century. All that stuff is piled up inside you. You've got piles. But it's the pressure from the piling up that creates the swelling on the exterior of the anus, which is, which is the hemorrhoids. So it's like a traffic jam causing a bulge. All right. So <laughs> let's, let's not linger over that one. <laughs> because, I mean, for, uh, there's an obvious joke here, too, with, with piles that could be associated. But I, I must say that I kind of like the nice Anglo-Saxon simplicity of piles versus the Greek influence multi-polysyllabic hemorrhoids with that odd h in there that always trips people up well uh that's enough on hemorrhoids for now is it going to be any nicer to talk about pink disease not not really it's pretty <laughs> horrible they used to treat teething infants with soothing powders that were to help them get over the pain of the teeth breaking through. And these medicines often contained either mercury or lead. And uh, the result is, unsurprisingly, that they often developed uh, pink gums, more a rash that was pinker than they used to. And uh, this was referred to as a pink disease. It evidently took some time for people to figure out it was the treatment that was causing the disease. And mercury and lead have both been used medicinally over the years for various purposes. Lead was used in makeup in the Renaissance uh, to create a paler complexion. Um, people like Queen Elizabeth would have used it, and it was horrible for your skin, of course. And mercury was the best medicine to use against syphilis for a long time until antibiotics came along. But the idea of moistening your infant's gums with mercury or lead poison is uh, horrific but that was that's what pink disease was well uh let's take a stance on this podcast okay and and we'll take a stance and we'll also avoid a lawsuit we are officially against using mercury and lead in teething powders absolutely can we, can we say <laughs> yes okay <laughs> all right uh, uh, controversial stance i know but we're gonna we're gonna take it and um uh, also, to avoid lawsuit, we, should we clarify that Oragel does not use uh, mercury or lead in its makeup? <laughs> not that I know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so the reason we don't call it pink disease anymore is because we don't have it, because we figured out we were we were administering the uh, mercury that caused it. Right. So we just stopped doing that, and voila, we eradicated a disease. How about that? Yeah. Uh, now, the next one I know is a, um, it's got to be related to pleurosis. Right. Um, and it's called, it's pronounced pleurisy. Is that pleurisy. right? Pleurisy. It's been in fairly common use in recent decades. Mm -hmm. It was uh, related to the lungs and the pleura, the surrounding membrane covering the lung. And originally, it was supposed to be a disease caused by a surplus of blood that had affected the membrane covering the lung. And it was used in old times to refer to any pain in the chest area in which the pain was noticed with each breath. So every time you inhaled, you had some pain and that was pleurisy. But it didn't mean that it was plural breaths. It's, it's P-L-E-U. 
which refers to this membrane on the lungs. And is it related to tuberculosis in, in some way? I, I don't think so, but uh, I'm not absolutely sure. One seems sometimes like everything gets related to TB, but I think pleurisy was a distinct phenomenon. Yeah, both related to the lung, of course. Right. What, what about quincy? Yeah, tonsillitis, and it comes from a Greek word that related to diseases of the throat. You know, tonsillitis, infections of the tonsils, used to be fairly common. And when I was a kid, it was normal for parents to just have the tonsils removed. They were thought to be non-functioning, leftover evolutionary hangover. And so when I was five, I was taken to a hospital and had my tonsils removed. And the, the famous... Uh, thing that happened to these kids is they say, well, you will have a sore throat, but you get to eat some ice cream. It's <laughs> yes. the soothing yes. medicine given yeah. for after your tonsillectomy. Yeah, I'm so glad that that has been uh, set aside. I, I barely missed that, uh-huh. you know. Um, both my older brother and older sister were just at the tail end of the uh, tonsillectomy phenomenon. <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, where uh, it seemed to be that that was a rite of passage in childhood was you had your tonsils removed. Turns out to be not the best idea. No. Uh, Last time we talked about grocer's itch, and you mentioned when we talked about grocer's itch that there are a number of diseases that are associated with certain professions or certain hobbies, jobs that people do. And uh, this next one's called rag picker's disease or wool sorter's disease. Right. And it turns out to be anthrax caused by infected wool from sheep, which had gotten the anthrax virus. And so it makes sense that both the rag pickers who are picking over old woolen garments and uh, the wool sorters would have this kind of infection. Uh, Now, we think of anthrax as... The powder, the handling of which will kill you instantly. Well, inhaling it, I think, is the big danger. You're right. It will get airborne if you're handling right. it at all. And So you're... if you're picking over these rags and handling wool, a lot of it will get fluffed up into the air and you inhale it. But would this be instantly fatal? I don't know. I don't know enough about this particular thing, but it sounds scary. Uh, it does sound pretty scary. You know, you don't want ra- something called rag picker's disease. Well, first of all, anthrax is appropriately named. I have to say that that's one of those words that has a sound that is appropriate to the threat, <laughs> right? Anthrax uh, could you couldn't be talking about unicorns in a in a field of rainbows, right? No, it sounds like one of those monstrous evil planets that Doctor Who visits where they're trying to destroy everything. Yeah, anthrax. <laughs> I mean, it's just so descriptive in, in, in its sound. Uh, so I'm really glad we've moved off of rag picker's disease, which sounds, sounds pretty whimsical. Uh, what about room? Now, we mentioned room, mentioned it in passing before, but uh, we're going to deal with it a little more closely now. This is room, not R-O-O-M. This is R-H-E-U-M. Right. Uh, Watery or mucus secretions, especially collecting in or dripping from the eyes, nose, or mouth, originally believed to originate in the brain or head and be capable of causing disease. So leaky brain, just as leaky breast, could give you a milk leg. 
leaky brain could give you a room. And uh, they also thought that rheumatism was originally uh, caused by a flow of this room stuff into the joints or muscles. Oh, boy. It also occurs in The Pink Panther, <laughs> or Peter Sellers with his uh, <laughs> pretend French accent talks about having a room. <laughs> and yes. it leads to a whole series of confusions. Yes, right. You have a room. Yeah, I remember that pretty well. And, and uh, but he is so that's sort of a play on this idea, right? Because right. he's got a kind of a nasal sounding. Uh, odd, very affected French accent where you would associate that with room <laughs> already. And here he is asking if you have a room. Now, uh, so rheumatism then is arthritis, of course. So that's where we get the connection is that this watery mucus secretion is, is just right. spilling out into the joints right. and that's what's causing the joints to feel um, uh, arthritic. Yeah. So when somebody says they're suffering from rheumatism, it doesn't mean they got a runny nose, they got arthritis. Right. Okay. Uh, how about rose cold or rose catar? We talked about catar before. Right, you could almost guess this one. This is a hay fever. So, you know, if you're allergic to roses, smell one, you get this sneezing and watery, itchy eyes and so on. Uh, it, it feels sort of like a cold. So uh, a rose cold is exactly that. It's an allergic reaction to roses or other blossoming plants. I see. So it's got it's got to do with the pollen. Uh, not limited to just roses, and it doesn't have right. to do with the rose color. It has to do with the rose plant. Right. Yeah, okay. But the next one does have to do with the rose color. Right, yeah, Scarlet, I was about to say, Scarlatina, that's got something to do with, with uh, red, doesn't it? I, I think of a, a, a gypsy woman in Spain playing a tambourine and dancing named Scarlatina. <laughs> right, yeah. But it's, it's an older name for a mild form of scarlet fever, uh, which has uh, got a, a scarlet rash, a reddish rash. It's now known to be caused by a streptococcus infection, but um, they didn't know exactly what it was then. But I think it's a, kind of a pretty name, Scarlatina. It does have a great name. Uh, it's always a problem with um, using great-sounding names to describe pretty bad illnesses. Yeah, don't name your little girl Scarlatina. Yeah. Well, here's one I have never heard of before. I've heard of putting the screws to somebody, but I've never heard of having the screws. What, what's, what's that? Well, this is one of those conscious uh, plays on words where it's not that people don't understand it, but that they just play around with it. So rheumatism produces rheumatic symptoms, and people punned on this, not very cleverly, as screwmatic, and then that got shortened and turned to screws. I see. So, I mean, it's not exactly what we would call rhyming slang, but it's just a... No, it's, it's a sort rhyme. of like rhyming slang in that way. Sort of. Yeah. Rhyming slang has a twice removed element to it. And maybe sometime we'll talk about rhyming slang on the podcast, but I don't think we want to get into that today. Okay. Uh, we'll scarp around to something else. Here. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah, let's go. Let's move on to St. Anthony's Fire. That, that sounds fantastic. St. Anthony's Fire. And you think of uh, one of these um, martyrdom portraits Usually the early Christian martyrs were people who died in various horrible ways, supposedly killed by the Romans, most of which were entirely fictional. 
but in this case, this is a skin disease. It could be ergot caused or erysipelas. Nobody knows why it's connected with St. Anthony. He doesn't seem to have this direct connection with fire. Did we talk once before about Catherine's wheel? And... I don't think so. Okay, well, St. Catherine was supposed to have been martyred by being bound on a wheel of fire. That's why those uh, f- fireworks that consist of spinning things that shoot out sparks and lights uh, are called St. Catherine wheels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was very entertained in Paris when visiting this museum one time to find a statue of St. Catherine holding her fiery wheel. And right next to her was a fire extinguisher. Uh I I thought that was very thoughtful. Actually, we can post the picture that I took of that combination. But no no notion why St. Anthony has to do with this particular disease. Hmm. What about another saint? St. Vitus. St. Vitus... St. Vitus's dance? Viper's dance? Yeah. Well, um, the technical name is Sydenham's Chorea, C-H-O-R-E-A. It's characterized by rapid, uncoordinated jerking movements, primarily affecting the face, hands, and feet. And St. Vitus was a patron saint of dancers because it was a tradition of dancing in front of his statue during his feast in Germany and Latvia. These connections of saints with various things are sometimes quite bizarre. (laughs) And this one, it's just a particular area where they used to dance in front of his statue and then called uh, this disease that produced this jerking movements, St. Vitus's dance. So the root cause of it is this Sydenham's chorea disorder? Yes. Uh And and, and that that makes you jerky. Right. reminds me a little bit of bone break disease, right? That right. that was back in our first discussion, I believe, right. of, or our second discussion of of these diseases, a similar kind of thing where you break break bone fever, which was associated with dengue fever, not yeah. not this other thing. So well, distinct- wasn't there a dance in the sixties called the jerk? Yes. Yeah. So I don't think anybody ever associates associated St. Vitus with it, though. Uh, no, I think that was just an intentional um, movement. <laughs> I don't think it was a spasmodic movement like this. And I don't know about Viper's dance, I, whether it was just a mistaken uh, hearing of Vitus or mm-hmm. whether they thought about it, the motion of a snake or something. That one I don't know about. I see. Okay, well, let's see. What about staggers? Suffering from staggers, what are you suffering from? Well, this is one that seemed to be applied only to animals. So uh, somebody discussing uh, the way that an animal was staggering around. Mm. Of course, many things could cause that. It was called having the staggers. I see. Well, it's pretty descriptive and pretty straightforward. So it would be a number of different causes resulting in a staggering gait. What about tertian or... Quartan fevers. Yeah, T-E-R-T-I-A-N and mm-hmm. Q-U-A-R-T-A-N. They had this notion that the fevers could be characterized and diagnosed by the intervals at which they reached a crisis. And the idea was you wanted the fever to break. But we tend to try to tame down those fevers these days when they get serious. But in the old days, it was you just tried to nurse the person along until they would reach this climax. And so they were very eager to know exactly when was this going to happen. And they decided that some diseases 
would uh, reach a climax every third or fourth day. A tertian fever actually dies away after the first onset, and on the third day it comes back, and then you keep going every other day. So a tertian fever is an every other day fever, which is not what I would have expected from the name, which exists, uh, suggests the number three. But the one that's every fourth day is the quartan fever. I see. It turns out that the body's uh, attempts to rid itself of an infection are actually aided to a certain degree by a, a rise in temperature. And running a temperature is not altogether a bad thing. There's not this insistence on calming it down to normal immediately that there used to be, but there's definitely a range in which it begins to endanger the health of the person further and, and uh, then you do want to avoid these, these climaxes that were very much a subject of a lot of speculation in medicine and also in literature. Right. And um, I think it remains to be something to monitor very carefully with children, especially yes. who, who can right. really run high and really wild and, and dangerous fevers. Most of us adults don't have that particular problem to worry about. We, were, we run a fever of 100 degrees or 101 or something, generally just wait it out. What about tetter? I'm interested to find out about tetter because it turns out I suffer from tetter. Well, it was could be used for all kinds of different skin diseases, eczema, mm -hmm. herpes, ringworm. Mm -hmm. It eventually got used only for animals and specifically horses. So yeah. horses would be said to have tetter. I see. Humans. All right. So I, I am not a horse, but I do suffer from eczema. So uh, in, the pa in the past, I might have been said to have suffered from tetter. This is a kind of a chronic problem that waxes and wanes over time. Right. I've got some eczema, too, and I was using an, an ointment to treat it that was prescribed by a specialist about 20 years ago, sir. I recently saw a more up-to-date doctor who said, oh, that stuff is notorious for causing the eczema to flare up when you stop using it. <laughs> you yes. Just use hydrocortisone instead, so... Right. Yeah. And overusing any of these ointments is uh, going to be a problem, um, yeah. I've found. And I don't know how to, I don't actually know how to treat it in any effective long-term way. <laughs> but uh, there are times when you absolutely have to apply something to it to, yeah, to well, get this, it to calm down. Um, this specialist uh, said that hydrocortisone 1% over the counter is pretty harmless used mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, good to know. We can. But you should ask your own doctor. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> we are not. Yes, I was going to say we're not. We're not giving medical advice here, especially. But uh, we're interested in the language, right? And the next one we're interested in is variola. Another pretty sounding word. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I mean, the variola. That's a piece in an orchestra, right? <laughs> or it could be a set of variations. Okay, yeah, the variola. But it's actually pustules or other skin lesions from an infectious disease like smallpox or measles. Oh. And later it came to be a name for smallpox, and you do run across that in older books sometimes. Somebody got variola, they usually mean smallpox. I see. So not nearly as nice as a, uh, a pretty string instrument. No. Mm -hmm. That would be a viola anyway. How about winter fever? That's pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go by a drugstore or a grocery store these days, you're very likely 
to see ads suggesting that you get your pneumonia inoculations, particularly dangerous for older people. Right. And so over 65, if you're on Medicare, you can get your pneumonia vaccine for free. If you're younger, you have to pay for it yourself or or have some exceptionally generous insurance. But if I'm not mistaken, it's not limited to wintertime that you can contract pneumonia. No, not at all. (laughs) So uh, calling it winter fever is a bit of a misnomer. Right. Finally, we have one that's pretty descriptive, and it is what you might guess it is. It's called Scrivener's Palsy. Yeah, Scrivener, of course, is a person who wrote for a profession, not creative writing, but writing usually what somebody else wanted them to write. And uh, it's what we call writer's cramp. And now uh, what we have instead is carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm-hmm. So we're increasing our getting more and more descriptive about what it actually is in the body but we're getting more and more removed from what's causing it. Uh, One of the names for it that we used to use maybe something more like 10 to 15 years ago was Blackberry Thumb. Ah. Do you remember that? No, I never had a Blackberry. Okay, well, Blackberry was a, is, (laughs) I guess they still produce Blackberries. They're on their last legs. They keep saying they're on their last legs. It's the phone that has the keyboard right on the face of it. So when you want to text, you can take your two thumbs and you can press down on the keys of the keyboard. I remember Obama being pressured to give up his BlackBerry that he was so addicted to. Well, uh, Hillary too, right? She she had all kinds of problems with her BlackBerry. Well, I uh, had hoped uh, last year that uh, I might have gotten carpal tunnel syndrome because I have had a lot of soreness in my thumbs, which I think comes a lot from pressing the space bar a lot and doing a lot of typing, mm-hmm. but um, when I got diagnosed, I said, well, it's just regular arthritis. The nice, the reason I was hoping it was carpal tunnel is that that's pretty easily fixed with uh, simple surgery these days. Right. Whereas arthritis, you're kind of stuck with. Yeah. So uh, not that anybody wants carpal tunnel, but if you have to choose between the two, you'd rather have that than arthritis because of the possibility of curing it with a, a simple surgery. Yeah. Well, uh, not everything can be cured by surgery and not everything even exists as we find out over time. We've talked about a lot of these diseases, uh, some of which do not exist anymore. And uh, many of them have been renamed and refined in their naming uh, to be something that's more descriptive, something that is just, I don't know, we think of it as just being more scientific in a way. But a lot of these old names are really worth knowing about, especially if you're reading old literature, as you pointed out as we've been talking about these. But, uh, that about wraps it up for our discussion of antiquated disease names. I hope it's been interesting for those listening. <laughs> it's been interesting for me uh, going down all of these different words that we no longer use, but uh, they're worth knowing about. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, plowing through these, uh, the etymologies of these, especially. It's pretty entertaining. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paul. All right. Talk to you next time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.